Admiral McRaven. That was just outstanding. What a, what a great American. Um, my name is uh, Joseph Titrani, president of the Intelligence National Security Alliance. I work for uh, Ambassador John Negroponte, who's our chairman. Uh, and uh, I might add, he was our first director of national intelligence. So, so we are especially delighted to partner with the Clemens Center and the Strauss Center to help strengthen the national dialogue on the challenges and opportunities ahead for the intelligence community. These are significant issues, and we heard Admiral McRaven talk about a number of those issues. Very powerful. Promoting dialogue is the core of our mission at the Intelligence National Security Alliance. INSER brings together the public, the private, academic sec sectors to collaborate on intelligence-related national security issues. With more than 160 corporate members and several hundred individual members from across government industry and academia, INSER advances the national security conversation through its panels, discussions, white papers, other activities by its councils and task forces. I encourage you to take a look at our website, take a look at the white papers. I think you'll find them interesting, and the people involved are just outstanding. There could not be a more appropriate time to engage in that conversation than the 10th anniversary of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. This was a touchstone moment for how our defense and intelligence communities are organized. And it's appropriate to reflect on the impact this has had on our national security, as well as the opportunities ahead, and indeed the challenges ahead. Before we move on, I'd like to express my appreciation to Raytheon, one of INSA's most active corporate members, for their essential support for this conference. And it's now my pleasure to introduce Gina Genton, the Vice President for Space and Intelligence Programs at Raytheon. Gina is an influential member of INSA's Executive Committee, and we're so pleased she could join us today to introduce Director Clapper. Gina, thank you. Thanks, Gina. It really is a pleasure to be here. I just want to also add my thanks to the university and INSA for bringing together really a treasure trove of, of minds here that have been involved in intelligence for many, many decades and uh, in particular, the intelligence uh, reform law. Uh, it's really hard. Some of us who did some of the heavy lifting after the law was passed to make this uh, new model work, uh, it's really remarkable to think that it's actually been a decade. And uh, we don't often have the time or don't take the time to get together and reflect on what has happened and what uh, sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly is. And so I just uh, hats off to the sponsors uh, of this uh, conference because I think uh, it will yield really the outcome here should be uh, some really interesting uh, additional dialogue and debate, I suspect, on uh, the way forward. Um, it's, it's really a, a special a treat for me to introduce uh, uh, Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper. I've known him for over 25 years. Uh, and uh, we've really had the privilege of working closely together on a number of occasions uh, over, the, over the decades uh, in intelligence. General Clapper has been a leading force, or maybe I should just say a force, uh, in intelligence. And uh, I'm told that you actually started your career here in Texas at uh, the Goodfellow Air Force Base. So there's, there, is a, there is a Texas connection. <laughs> applause, somebody? <laughs> 
Uh, I know uh, your accolades have already been uh, remarked upon uh, already today, but if I just look back at the last 10 years, which is the, uh, really the period of um, the Intel Reform Act, and where you've been and the influence you've had, I think it'll add a little bit of context to um, really how special uh, Jim Clapper really is here. Uh, when the legislation was passed, um, he was in the midst of transforming NEMA, the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, into a three-letter agency. And that's really important. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, it actually really does matter. And for those of you thinking that's four, it's not. There's a hyphen in geospatial intelligence. <laughs> so I know you were counting there. Uh, he served two administrations as a USDI, and he was confirmed, of course, as DNI in August of 2010. I think that you have the distinction of being the longest uh, serving DNI, and it's not over yet. Uh, General Clapper has led really a wide uh, variety of uh, intelligence positions, and what's interesting about that is he can look at it, look at intelligence in, in how, not only how it's produced, uh, but how it's used and how it's used in uh, really different venues. So he has, uh, he's seen intelligence from a warfighter perspective. He's seen it from a broad policy perspective. He's seen it from a White House perspective inside the Oval Office. And really, he's also seen it from an intelligence uh, professional's uh, perspective. And really, across all of the ends, it really, whether you worked in uh, HUMINT or SIGINT or GEOINT or OSINT or MASINT, he really has had his hand uh, uh, in all of that over the years. So it, this isn't theoretical for Jim Clapper. This, this is real, and he has, he has lived in many of those different shoes. I can also say that he, when he wants to, can see the intelligence discipline from the Congress's perspective. And I know if you ask him that, his favorite thing to do is to testify. <laughs> this is bar none. And I think it's also fair that um, he can see it from the, the public's perspective as well. So if you look at uh, intelligence through a multifaceted lens, which I think is what we are going to do here over the next couple of years, no better person to lend a perspective there uh, than Jim Clapper. As members of the Intelligence Committee, we have an obligation to hold ourselves to high standards, and as practitioners in this vital field focused on our nation's security, it's leaders like General Clapper who remind us that ethics, accountability, and dedication to service are what make a community strong. We're here to continue that tradition, asking tough questions and having candid conversations about the path forward. The one thing we can always count on from Jim Clapper is candor and I would add to that courage. Uh, it's really these two character traits that I value and respect most, um, even when it lands you in hot water occasionally. So I know he will speak candidly um, to us about all aspects of this, and it is with uh, great honor and privilege that I welcome to the podium James Clapper. Thank you very much. Well, this is uh, kind of scary looking way up there, 
It reminds me of the Coliseum, you know, <laughs> Daniel down here in the lion's den. Well, it's a great honor to be here in the, this confluence of the Clement Center, Strauss Center, and, and, and INSA, the association, a group I've had a long association with, and so many uh, iconic figures here uh, from uh, uh, past life, uh, friends and colleagues that uh, are, are here. Um, Steve Cambone, David Shedd, uh, John McLaughlin's here somewhere, and Steve Hadley, former National Security Advisor. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I do know, do need to single out, though, one iconic figure that had a huge impact on, on my life. He probably doesn't remember this, but uh, as a young pup, I served at the uh, National Security Agency when Bobby Inman was uh, the director. And uh, in the uh, Hall of Iconic Figures at NSA, he's still regarded as one of the greatest directors that the agency ever had. And he promoted me to, to colonel in the Air Force on the 1st of February, 1980, 34 years ago. And uh, Admiral Inman never, never forgot the way you ran that ceremony. It had a huge impact on my family. So thank you. And sir, it's great to be here with you. Um, please stand up. Please. Please. Yeah, please. I want to do that because when I was at NSA, uh, Admiral Inman had a way of wire brushing me, and I was trying to get points with him, So, because I'm sure he's going to do that later. Um, I thought I'd start um, with, uh, you know, somebody kind of took my thunder here about uh, Bill McRaven's philosophy. Speaking of another personal hero of mine, uh, what a catch for uh, the University of uh, Texas. Um, uh, but... Uh, you know, the aforementioned philosophy about uh, making your bed. And uh, I have a quote from that. And um, if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. Um, if you want to make, uh, you have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a sense of pride and will encourage you to, to, to do another task. And another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Then he added something that has helped me every time I've had to testify on the Hill. And Gina was quite right. I ranked testifying right up there with root canals. <laughs> and he said, and you, if you have a really terrible, terrible day, at least you'll come home to a made bed. <laughs> and he's right. I really like the philosophical implications of that advice. There's actually great wisdom in that, and it's actually a great way to, to approach life. And I think it's a good way to think about how the IC got to where it is now and how we'll try to approach future challenges. The intelligence reform that's happened since 9-11 occurred because the selfless men and women of the intelligence community got up every morning and whether they made their beds or not, they went to work on the tasks that needed to be done to rebuild the intelligence infrastructure that had fallen into dis disrepair during the peace dividend of the 1990s, and to integrate the intelligence community so that we could work together to track down the terrorists who'd attacked us and prevent another attack from happening. We're here over the next couple of days to talk about that work and, now, and how, 10 years ago, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004 uh, enabled our efforts by codifying new tools, new processes, uh, 
and new directions for improving the way we did business. So we'll talk about our RTPA a lot here over the next uh, couple days. The key point I want us to remember is that our IC came together and reformed itself because our workforce got up every morning and, and, and put in the work, got into the work of intelligence integration. This evening I've been asked to kind of set the stage for discussing the conference theme, intelligence reform and counterterrorism after a decade, are we smarter and safer? So let's first talk about where we were 10 years ago. In June of 2004, the 9-11 Commission released its report on the terrorist attacks. I know a lot of, a lot of people here have read uh, the 9-11 Commission report, and it's worth reading again. It opens with people going to work in New York and Arlington and with Mohammed Atta and his terror cell getting on a plane in Portland, Maine. It tells what happened that day and how we responded, and it analyzes the missed opportunities that we had to perhaps keep the terrorist attacks from, from happening. The commissioners graphically described the summer before the attacks with the phrase in the aforementioned book, the system was blinking red. I want to read a passage that I think nails the problem we had as, as a community. The commissioners wrote, the agencies cooperated some of the time, but even such cooperation as there was is not the same as joint action. When agencies cooperate, one defines the problem and seeks help with it. When they act jointly, the problem and options for actions are defined differently from the start. Of course, intelligence integration, which has been my theme for the last four plus years, I've been DNI, and believe me, it feels like it, is a prerequisite to, to reaching the 9-11 Commission's goal that we act jointly. In the summer and fall of 2004, 9-11 Commission report weighed heavily on discussions of the state of the United States intelligence community. Along with the fact that nearly a year and a half after the fall of Baghdad, people were asking why we still hadn't found any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So with that backdrop, Congress, working with the White House and the executive departments, began to sort through what statutory changes the intelligence community needed. A couple of months ago, NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, invited Senators Susan Collins and Joe Lieberman to come talk about their experience, since they were the key authors of the Senate bill that led to the IRTPA. That's what created ODNI and the position I now occupy, and that established NCTC and statute as part of the ODNI. A few weeks ago, I told NCTC that now that they're 10 years old, the other kids have finally figured out that NCTC is not there to take away their toys. In fact, NCTC has brought some of their own and showed everyone that things work out better when they all share. That's why NCTC was created a decade, a decade ago to increase information sharing and integration in the counterterrorism community. This spring, the entire ODNI will celebrate 10 years since the rest of our office stood up. Like a lot of Americans, we're both, particularly at that age, you know, approaching the tweens, we're a little curious and a little squeamish to hear details about how we came into being. But as we told the senators, more than anything, we're just happy that the people who were involved will still claim us. On September 23rd, 2004, Senator Collins introduced the legislation. The Senate bill passed on October 6th, and the House passed the bill on October 16th. That was 10 years ago today. And the Senate, but the Senate and House bills, as so often happens, were very different. 
So when the two chambers couldn't reconcile differences before the midterms election, most people thought the legislation, in fact, was dead. And the talk after elections was that it would be futile to start over again with a new Congress. That anyone who was still trying to pass IRTPA was, in essence, beating a dead horse. That reminds me of the ancient tribal wisdom that, that says that when you're riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount. <laughs> well, in Washington, we sometimes do things differently. We often try strategies that are a little less successful, such as buying a stronger whip, changing riders, saying things like, this is the way we've always ridden this horse, appointing a committee to study the horse, lowering the standards so that more dead horses can be included, appointing a tiger team to revive the dead horse, hiring outside contractors to ride the dead horse, harnessing several dead horses together to increase speed, attempting to mount multiple dead horses in hopes that one of them will spring to life, providing additional funding and training to increase the dead horse's performance, doing a productivity study to see if lighter riders would improve the dead horse's performance, declaring that since a dead horse doesn't have to be fed, it's less costly, carries lower, lower overhead, and therefore contributes more to the mission than live horses. And finally, my favorite, promoting the dead horse to a supervisory position. <clears throat> Obviously, beating a dead horse doesn't typically work. But 10 years ago, Congress came back from elections, resolved their differences, and passed the bill to the president, who signed the IRTP law into law on December 17, 2004, President Bush. IRTPA, to be clear, like all major legislation, believe me, I know, I've lived with it, was flawed. Actually, it overachieved at being flawed. But it codified intelligence reforms and established in statute the office of the DNI. So for the past decade, the IC has chartered the course of integration, with the 9-11 Commission report as the compass and IRTPA legislation as the map. And the men and women of the IC got up every morning and one task at a time worked to integrate our community. And today we're responding to threats, cooperating on developmental projects, executing operations that we couldn't have envisioned 13 years ago, and certainly didn't foresee when I joined the IC more than 51 years ago, although we didn't even call it the IC in those days, we built a robust infrastructure and a very dynamic workforce. We turned around IC major systems acquisition, basically moving them all into green, that is, on time and on budget, and delivering revolutionary capabilities. We integrated our foreign partners into our activities in ways that we had never done before. We were more effectively exploiting the value of financial intelligence and threat finance. NSA has put SIGINT at the fingertips of combatant commanders when and where they need it. We've evolved targeting as a new discipline, tracking the digital trail of terrorists through massive volumes of information, those elusive needles and those many haystacks, and increasingly interconnected databases. And three and a half years ago, we got Osama bin Laden. How could I not mention that with Chancellor-to-be McRaven here? I truly believe that integrating intelligence in new ways was a key to that mission succeeding. CIA appropriately gets a great deal of credit for the success of that raid. But it would not have happened without the unsung work of the National Security Agency and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency as well. And each of these agencies acted jointly to produce the necessary intelligence. 
and we work closely with Admiral McRaven's teams to prepare them for the raid. I believe that mission, even more than it was a marvelous demonstration of the special operations capabilities, their skill, and their bravery, but it was also a testament to months and years of IC agencies working jointly and just how far we come as a community. The Abbottabad raid was the culmination of joint intelligence work I didn't think we could have pulled off a, a decade ago. But that's not the end of the story. It's not the pinnacle of intelligence integration because the work of intelligence integration is still going on. I, I think of it as a perpetual journey, not an end. It's not something we're going to have all done by close of business next Friday. In the three and a half years since that raid in Abbottabad, we've been tested in new and very difficult ways. And we've shown, I think, the value of integration. And integration doesn't just apply to the pointy end of the intelligence world, that is, collection and analysis, which is what we normally think about it. It applies across the whole range of supporting and enabling activities. Not as sexy, maybe, but, uh, but every bit as important. Acquisition, IT, planning, strategy, programming, our human capital, how we manage our finances, inspectors general, public affairs, legislative affairs, equal, it, the list goes on. The point is, integration must pervade the entirety of the enterprise, not just what we normally associate with the intelligence pointing end of the stick was what, it, what is produced. The summer of 2011, just after those years of intelligence work culminated in that raid, we faced the first decreasing budgets we'd seen in a decade. In many ways, having to cut the IC budget served as a real litmus test for my office. I would make the point parenthetically that we didn't get a pass from sequestration, as some people still think. In many ways, having to cut the intelligence community uh, was a very tough thing to do, but we tried to do it as a corporate body across the intelligence community. It's not all that hard in the 10 years running where every year we got more money and more people. Not, that's not a big challenge, but when you're cutting, a different proposition. So we had to cut programs and capabilities based on mission needs and prioritization rather than taxing on a, everyone gives it the office basis, which is classically the way we've done it in Intel. So, um, that's, of course, that's what kind of led to the hollowed-out workforce and inadequate capabilities that we had in 2001. So through sequestration and further cuts, we've taken some systems offline. We've stopped doing some things just like we said we do by making some tough calls corporately. But we've also been able to invest and protect some things that are crucial to the future of the community, principally in people and technology. And so uh, to, to ensure that we'll still be able to perform those critical missions. When we rolled out the 2014 National Intelligence Strategy a couple of weeks ago at uh, INSA Symposium uh, in Washington, I talked about building a solid foundation of capabilities that will enable us to respond to a variety of crises. And that includes two big ideas for the future of intelligence. One of these ideas is to develop systems for multi-int persistence from space. We want to be able to look at areas of, the, of interest to include denied areas for longer periods of time to stare with different kinds of sensors to develop the patterns of life, which has been such a huge success with UAVs. 
So this is a big deal for intelligence. That's about all I say about it in this, in this setting. The second big idea is to pull all the intelligence agencies, put all the, all the intelligence agencies on a common IT network and infrastructure. This is something we've talked about for years and years in the intelligence community, just never did anything about it because we didn't have to. So this was budget-driven at first, given the huge investment that we spend every year across the National Intelligence Program on IT. We call this iSight, the IC IT enterprise. And so uh, we've laid about, uh, took about two years to lay the foundation for this, and now we've started adoption of integrated IT systems. And of course, we're capitalizing on cloud computing technology and storage and building in the attendant uh, uh, security features. And the bumper sticker mantra is tag the data, tag the people. So we know what the, what's in the data, where it is, and the bona fides of those with whom we're going to share it. So this serves the purpose both of promoting integration, sharing, as well as security. Uh, I will tell you that we're way past the euphoria stage of what a great idea this is, and now we're well into the passive-aggressive resistance phase. <laughs> For any of you that have uh, undertaken uh, major, uh, major ch uh, change things like this. Um, among the other many things that we'll do, one of the major ways we're going to save money is to reduce profoundly uh, the reliance on the marching army of IT contractors that we've had, one of whom, of course, was Edward Snowden. So that's, that's critical going forward. Because of the same period we've taken budget cuts, we've lost sources and methods to unfa unfaithful insiders, first through WikiLeaks and then massive losses because of the IT system administrator, who's, who, of course, is now in in Russia. Now the result is what I have referred to uh, on the Hill as a perfect storm that's actually degrading our capabilities. The theft and leak of NSA and IC documents and the loss of uh, collection as a result, and if there's any doubt in your mind that we have lost capability, uh, let me disavow of, of that. And we see that particularly, unfortunately, with the terrorist target. Plus, of course, the resulting damaged relationships with foreign and corporate partners, which have been quite profound, and it's the conscious decisions that we've made to stop collecting on some specific targets, and then you overlay that with our increasingly constrained budget resources. So as I tell my friends on the Hill, whatever you think about intelligence, you have a lot less of it to complain about. And the result of this perfect storm is that we, in my view, as a nation, are taking more risk. In many cases, we've chosen where we're taking risk, cutting specific programs, stopping specific collection, declassifying specific documents. And all of these are good choices, as long as we recognize that we as a nation have to manage the attendant risk that we will incur when we take these actions. And all that is part of the strategic environment that we work in. And at the same time, the expectations for intelligence really haven't changed. Um, Will has written a great book, um, or a great piece for Foreign Policy uh, magazine this past spring, something I really resonated with, The Seven Impossible Demands Policymakers Place on Intelligence. He wrote that policymakers have legitimate gripes with the IC, and I agree, and we have to continue to do better. But he also wrote, 
And I quote, in my experience, policymakers are prone to placing contradictory, sometimes impossible demands on the intelligence community. He described one demand this way, give me accurate and precise forecasts about the future, but don't make any mistakes. That kind of sums it up. So, well, thank you for that. I'll give you a shout out. Actually, this reminds me of something I learned at Goodfellow Air Force Base in 1963 when I first went there. First week in Intel school, you learn that there are only two conditions in life. There's policy success or there's Intel failure. There's no other condition in life. (laughs) So what he wrote about actually gets at a new set of imperatives that arose from all the turbulence that has beset the IC over the last year or so. These imperatives have spawned a new approach to the practice of intelligence which I first rolled out a couple of weeks ago at the NSA-FC Symposium in Washington. So let me try to describe this new approach. We're expected to keep the nation safe and provide exquisite, high-fidelity, timely, accurate, anticipatory, and relevant intelligence, but do so in such a manner that there is no risk, and there's no embarrassment to anyone if what we're doing is publicly revealed, and there's no threat to anyone's revenue bottom line, And there isn't even a scintilla of jeopardy to anyone's civil liberties and privacy, whether U.S. persons or foreign persons. We call this new approach to intelligence immaculate collection. (laughs) And by the way, we have to conduct it on the cheap. I had to do that bit again, because this is Texas, that was Washington, and credit my deputy for intelligence integration, Mike Dempsey, the chairman's brother, by the way, with coining that phrase. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, trying to use a little humor to make a serious point. Intelligence work involves stealing secrets. It's what we do. Specifically, stealing secrets from nations and transnational organizations that want to harm the United States or our friends and allies. And stealing secrets can be messy, as we've seen. Stealing secrets is not the same as divining mysteries. We can't predict the future. We can know where Russian troops are massing and maybe what they're discussing. We can even forecast what warning signs we'd see before they take an action. But we can't know what's going on in Putin's head or predict the Russian troops are actually going to cross the border. So over the past three years, we've met reduced resources, loss of capabilities, and sometimes unrealistic expectations that we be clairvoyant. That's happened as we're facing what I consider the most diverse array of threats I've seen in my now 51 years in the intelligence business. I don't remember a time when we've been beset by a wider array, a more diverse array of crises and challenges in the world than we are today. So including a terrorist threat that is clearly not diminishing. It is spreading globally and it is morphing into more and more so-called franchises, as was discussed earlier. And, of course, the rise of ISIL is of particular concern. And literally thousands, we estimate in excess of 16,000 foreign fighters who have gravitated to Syria from almost 90 countries and, of course, now are returning in large numbers to their countries of origin. I know all this sounds gloom and doom and foreboding. I acknowledge that. And we're here for the next two days to examine the question, Intel reform and counterterrorism after a decade, are we smarter and safer? So my response to the conference theme is this. Yes, we're far smarter. 
but I honestly cannot say we're safer. It's difficult to assess the full degree to which the losses of the past couple of years have hurt us, and it's hard to judge whether being smarter fully offsets the new threats we face. So I apologize for not having a definitive answer. I'm sure there will be a lot, a lot of discussion about this over the next couple of days. So let me draw one big conclusion before I wind down here. Um, I think despite our recent uh, serious challenges, we have one huge advantage over the IC of 2004. That's because of the 60% of our workforce that we've hired since 9-11. And it tends to look upon integration as a reality rather than some distant perfect vision of the future. They come to us integration-minded, if I can use that phrase. And since 2004, these men and women have grown into leaders. They aren't new hires any longer. They run the IC. They own our culture. And they have been a huge influence, a huge impetus towards promoting integration in the community. So we face the leaks, we face sequestration, world events, and operational challenges as an integrated community. And I am proud of the great men and women who have, have in the, that we have in the, in the intelligence community today and the way they have addressed these challenges. Admiral McRaven spoke very eloquently of the caliber of the people that we get into the military, and he is so right. Well, that same, those same qualities apply to the civilian workforce uh, in the intelligence community today. We have thousands of employees, civilian employees who have deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, some many, many times over, just as our military has. And they have the same ethic and the same degree of patriotism. We've, as an integrated intelligence community, we've made decisions to declassify and publicly release more than 3,000 pages of previously classified documents about our activities. Because the best way to deal with misconceptions that have resulted from the leaks, I believe, is to increase transparency. In fact, my major takeaway from this whole experience has been the need for transparency. My dad was in the signal intelligence business in World War II, and I started out my intel career, as, as we mentioned before, in the SIGINT business, which we never talked about ever. So talking about intelligence activity for me and the public is genetically antithetical. <laughs> and I'm sure the young Jim Clapper of 51 years ago would be shocked with the level of detail that we now publicly talk about SIGINT in 2014. But this is indicative of the huge changes that are taking place with respect to transparency and the same people who came to us with an expectation of, of integration. And they are also a hell of a lot more comfortable with transparency than Second Lieutenant Jim Clapper was in 1963. So we've sailed a long way in 10 years, again with the 9-11 Commission report as a compass and the IRTPA as a map. I think we, we have charted the course of integration. As an integrated intelligence community, we've faced world events and operational challenges. Today, we put our best and most appropriate IC-wide resources up against our toughest IC challenges. And I'm both proud and humbled to represent the intelligence community here uh, this evening. It is the selfless men and women of the IC who get up every morning, make their beds, and then they set out to accomplish the series of tasks that moves us forward together. So thanks very much for being here, for being a part of this, and for, for listening. I hope our reflection over the next two days helps us better see where, where we've come from and where we need to go. Thank you very much.
in a moment, we're going to start taking questions. And as before, there will be microphones moving up and down the aisle. But uh, like Will before, I, I can't resist taking the opportunity to uh, use the moderator's privilege to, to jump in myself. But I'll, I'll constrain myself and at least for now just ask one question. We all have become accustomed over the past year to thinking intensely as, as a public about the United States government as a, as a practitioner of collection. And, we, and we, we've been wrestling with the, the dilemmas this sometimes raises. What we're not hearing so much about is the United States government as the object of other people's collection efforts, strategic competitors, state actors, non-state actors. Um, you get a little bit about this talking about the private sector, but of course you, you have a lot of perspective on this. I would love to hear your thoughts on both the, are we dying a death by a thousand cuts either because of what's happening privately or even what's happening to the military and the government? Well, one of the uh, downsides, I suppose, of uh, the age of the internet uh, and uh, the globalization of information around the world uh, has been that, that uh, availability of, of so much information. And um, this is a great concern of mine. Um, uh, I've put a lot of emphasis on counterintelligence. Uh, we have uh, the National Counterintelligence Executive, which is also uh, set up by separate legislation, but which is a part of my office. And uh, that is a, a tremendous uh, threat for us because of adversary nation states, principally China and Russia, who uh, are going to town on us and exploiting our information, our intellectual property. Uh, we know a lot about the Chinese only because they're a lot noisier about it. I, I worry, frankly, more about the Russians who are a lot more su subtle and a lot more sophisticated about uh, um, purloining uh, our, our information. It is a serious, serious problem. We're not configured uh, collectively as a government and as a nation. Uh, to defend against this in the manner that we should. I've tried to put a lot of emphasis on my piece of that pie, which is uh, the threat and, convey and uh, conveying the threat. One of the things I didn't talk about in my remarks was, you know, I spoke really about the horizontal integration, if you will, of the agencies, the 16 components of the intelligence community. Another responsibility inherent in that is what I would call vertical integ integration, which means the state, local, private sector which is a whole new thing for the intelligence community. That's not something we used to do in the day. But it, uh, the, the, there are an array of threats, terrorism being one of them, but the, I think the more subtle, insidious threat is that posed by our cyber vulnerabilities. Very good. Well, let's hear from the audience. We have a couple of microphones here in motion. Oh, yes, George, right here. There's a microphone coming down for you. Thanks for your remarks and thanks for coming to Texas. We're glad to have you here. Um, would you please address the decline in oil, the, de the uh, fall in the ruble, and that impact on Russian stability? Well, this, uh, it's a shame, isn't it? You know, the price of oil dropping. Um, um, this is a result of a lot of things, not the least of which is uh, our sanctions, which have really had uh, a big impact on the, on the Russian economy. And, of course, the Russian economy is so distorted because it is reliant on one, that major source of revenue, which is uh, oil. And so as the prices drop for lots of reasons, um, not the least of which is our increasing energy independence, 
uh, this in turn is having a direct impact on uh, the economy, on uh, the ruble, which is inflating. The Russians are starting, are starting to have to eat up their, and they still have considerable reserves, uh, but it's having a big impact on them. Larry, right here in this row, right there. <coughs> General, to go back to your dead horses, um, it seems like one of the dead horses is uh, secrecy. Uh, in the sprawling intelligence community with so many individuals scattered all over the place, two individuals can have such an enormous yeah. impact and uh, I understand transparency is a natural response to um, having your secrets stolen, right. but some secrets you have to protect. What is the intelligence community doing with this particular dead horse? Well, one of the things I didn't talk about, because uh, it's kind of bureaucratic, but I'll, since you ask, is uh, another one of uh, Windmill's Don Quixote's flailing at is uh, clearance reform. Uh, this is a serious problem our clear in this country, our, as Mike McConnell is pretty passionate about it and will attest. Uh, the clearing system is broken, and we've got to reform it. So one of the things we're going to, which is a very complex undertaking, is a system of uh, continuous evaluation. Right now, when someone gets a clearance, you get an initial clearance five years later, and it's slipped. Some period after that, then you'll be look reinvestigated uh, to ensure that uh, you're still clearable. That that system is working is has been shown to be unsatisfactory. It doesn't work, and so we've got to change that. And uh, so we are in the process of going to a system of uh, of uh, continuous evaluation. That and the um, work we're doing to enhance in, insider threat detection by auditing and monitoring so we can a actually monitor the electronic behavior of employees. So at least you can, you know, catch the hemorrhage earlier uh, than, than we have. That said, we can build all the mousetraps we want into our clearance and insider threat detection systems. The fact is that our fundamentally our system is based on personal trust. We've had egregious violations of that personal trust in the past. We have a couple now, and we'll have them in the future no matter what we do. So what we must do, though, is to do as much as we can to deter in the first instance, and if we can't deter, to detect early. And that's what, that's what we've got to do as a government. On the issue of transparency, um, I think you know what we're talking about here. The, the most controversial aspect of the Snowden leak revelations was a, the infamous Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which governed the storage of selected business records telephony metadata. I'm convinced that when, and that, that addressed a specific gap revealed in the 9-11 attack where that a we had a correspondent, a communicant in Yemen, speaking with someone in San Diego. And at the time, there was no mechanism for matching, connecting the dots a phrase I wish would, would be eliminated from the English language. But anyway, so the 215 program was instituted specifically to address that, that weakness, that shortfall. The judgment was at the time, not faulting this, not being pejorative, was to keep that secret. I'm convinced that had that been explained to the American people as to why we need to do this and here's how it'll work, and importantly, the safeguards 
involving all three branches of the government to prevent abuse and to prevent violation of civil liberties and privacy, I don't think people would have been any more excited about this than they would be about the fact that the FBI maintains millions and millions of fingerprint files on innocent Americans. But we know that, we understand why they do it, and it's not a problem for most people. So ergo, I have become a proponent of transparency. That said, transparency is a two-way street, it's a two-edged sword, because the adversaries go to school, as we've seen, on that transparency. Let's go to uh, the, over here to some people we have not called upon yet, the, the, the lady in the, uh, the light-colored jacket there. Hi, sir. I'm Catherine Regan. I'm a graduate student in the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Department. And you've talked a lot about integration, both horizontally and vertically. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how intelligence reform and the leaks in recent years have affected integration with our international partners, our NATO partners, and other allies. Well, yeah, initially um, it was uh, damaging. Uh, we had uh, a lot of complaining publicly about uh, the, you know, these revelations that we're spying on people. I think I used that line in uh, testimony once. You know, classic movie Casablanca. What? There's gambling here. I'm shocked. You know. <laughs> uh, it reminded me of that. But, uh, and I, I will, I'll tell you, I've had some very, very unpleasant meetings uh, facing off and people across the table at, uh, what are you spying on us for, sort of thing. That's kind of a hard thing to respond to. <laughs> but we've sort of gotten over that for the most part with a couple of notable exceptions because um, the, these countries realize how dependent they are on us uh, for their own security. And so we get over the ceremonial public uh, berating, and then when we sit down in private, it's a much different conversation. And so we have, I spent a lot of time uh, with my uh, intelligence partners and interlocutors internationally, and I think for the most part, um, you know, we've, re we've repaired our, uh, that, that damage, but only because uh, they recognize uh, our leadership uh, in intelligence, and they, they acknowledge uh, their need and their dependence on us. Um, so that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of where we're there, where we're at there. Let me jump in with another one of mine. I, I can't resist. I, one of the things I think is most fascinating about the process of standing up uh, both ODNI and NCTC was this wrestling that went on about the what became the strategic operational planning mission and and strategic operational planning is such an interesting formulation um and, and i think a lot of us look at this and think well that was a strategically ambiguous phrase meant to meant to get this through into into existence and we'll figure out the particulars later what's your assessment of how that function for nctc has added value over time is is it is that working um uh, it's been uh, a slow a slow pull uh, that uh, that aspect of uh, NCTC, which is really not intelligence in the classic sense. Uh, it's it was the intent, of what, uh, I believe, of the drafters of the legislation and the uh, fathers and mothers of NCTC was to uh, orchestrate a counterintelligence campaign broad more broadly beyond just 
the intelligence aspects. Now that is actually coming into play as we speak because uh, NCTC has been assigned a role uh, in support of uh, General John Allen in putting together this international coalition uh, to take on ISIS. And this to me is sort of the um, uh, maturation of this uh, concept. I think it is, it, it is, although it's 10 years later, but it is, it is re in fact what was intended by uh, the drafters of the legislation. Let's go to this side of the room and the gentleman there with his hand up close to where you are. Thank you, Director Clapper. My name is Larry O'Brien. I'm a PhD student in national security policy here at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Uh, my question is how would you characterize the foreign combatants from Syria and Iraq? Are they identifiable? Are they organizationally networked? And most importantly, are they a threat to the homeland? You're speaking, how do we distinguish the foreign fighters? No, how do you characterize them in terms of a threat? Are they identifiable to us? Are they networked organizationally? And are they a threat to the homeland? The, um, some are. Uh, a lot, of, as, as these um, franchises, so-called, have spawned around the world, uh, many of them um, are, are much more locally focused. And that is the case in Syria. There are some 2,200 different groups uh, in Syria of varying political stripes, which are very hard to, to count, and people change from group to group. And some people seem to think we have Census Bureau fidelity, like we go door to door and say, who do you belong to? We can't quite do that. <laughs> um, so... The ones that, there are some that uh, do profess um, a threat to uh, the United States, to the homeland, to, to Europe first and then to us. And I, ISIS is in that category. Right now they're focused on things locally and, uh, you know, protecting and sustaining and, if possible, expanding the caliphate. But they have said in, in uh, and I believe their rhetoric, that the confrontation with the United States is just a matter of time. So we take that seriously. We're, we're treating, though, as, treating that as though it were eminent, and we can have debates about the definition of eminence. Uh, and there are others like that, of varying uh, capability and, and, and varying uh, severity of intent. Um, I won't fib to you. The intelligence challenges in Syria are, are quite profound because... We're not there on the ground, uh, and that, that, that makes it uh, a very challenging intelligence problem. How about right next to the last question? Well, thank you very much for being here tonight. Uh, my name is Jason Brooks, and uh, I'm a former Marine, uh, Iraq veteran, and a LBJ school alum. And uh, so we've talked a lot about ISIS tonight and this question of whether or not they're a threat to the homeland continues to come up. We've talked a little bit about them being a threat to countries like Iraq or partners. But I, I think I, when I think about ISIS, I see them more as a threat to the Middle East as a whole in that they have this very revisionist idea of how they see nation states in relation to one another and the region. And I'm so my question is, what is the United States thinking about that threat coming from ISIS? Well, I think uh, we at least uh, think, try to think of the, uh, the larger potential 
uh, of all of these groups and this ferment in the whole region. And in the end, you know, this is kind of a uh, Shia versus Sunni uh, war in a sense. And w among the, the Sunni, uh, those who claim uh, the, the genuine caliphate, and of course there are those who have a vision of the whole Mideast, all the, the whole Muslim world would be in this, in this caliphate. So I think, you know, we, we kind of understand that. Um, the problem, I think, that we sometimes forget is uh, the world of special operations uh, represented by Admiral McRaven and my world intelligence. We're kind of late in the, in the game and when you think about it. And we should be, to use a military phrase, thinking about this way left of boom. Tom Friedman, who writes great stuff for the New York Times, I think had a great line uh, when he said, you know, the Middle East is too important to ignore and too expensive to fix. And I think it's a good bumper sticker for the, the magnitude of the challenge you have uh, in that whole region. Alan Craven spoke about ungoverned areas, and he's exactly right. The proliferation of these ungoverned areas in the Sahel or the Maghreb areas of Africa Huge areas, ungoverned spaces, places awash in weapons, porous borders, weak governance. And of course, what gives rise to all this are the large, expanding population of frustrated young males who, who, who don't have employment. And so when you say, is the United States thinking about it, I'm just the intel guy down in the engine room shoving intel coal. But the larger issue here is how do we take on this, these larger issues way left of what I do in intelligence or way left of what special operations forces do? Let me actually jump back into the queue once more myself. I cannot resist. Uh, I know how much you love talking about Congress, and so I want to bring that up. Uh, if, if you had the pen and could, by statute, update IRTPA, and, and, and modify ODNI's authorities in some way, would you, or has it actually turned out more or less good enough as it is? Well, I think, first of all, there's a proclivity for, uh, for every functional problem nail, the only solution is a legislative sledgehammer. <laughs> and there are other ways to work, you know, make, make the system work besides legislation. And so that's the approach I've taken. The law is flawed. There are, there's a provision in it, for example, that basically neuters the rest of it. But it was put in there as a, as a, as a compromise, and that's the way business is done in our system. So you just live with that. There's hardly any major legislation you can look at in the history of this country that doesn't have some flaw in it. And uh, oh, I've got all kinds of big ideas for, you know, if I were king, which I'm not, how I'd change it. Um, some of which I get penalty language every year from the Congress for even thinking about it, so I can't talk about it here. <laughs> is, the, uh, is the problem clause you mentioned, is that the chain of command uh, language? or is it No, the chain of command, is. I, I haven't found that to be a problem. Uh, generally speaking, yeah. I ask agencies, directors to do something, they do it. Uh, one of the powerful tools that you have as a director of national intelligence is uh, the power of the purse. So... I am the manager for the National Intelligence Program, which funds all the agencies. And, you know, it's the golden rule thing. 
in, in the blue shirt there, about uh, six rows down. General Clapper, thank you for uh, coming tonight. My name is Kevin Merrill. I'm a master's uh, degree student here at the OBJ School for Public Affairs. My question is, is as we focus on the advancements that the American intelligence, can you hear me okay? That the American intelligence community has made over the past 10 years, what can you speak about the advancements that our allies and their intelligence communities, both in capacity and capabilities, have made? And do you feel that we are sharing intelligence globally better now than we were 10 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, of course, our, our closest foreign partners are uh, the Five Eyes, and we have a very intimate relationship uh, with them. And I think the same combination of factors that has beset us, that is the daunting threats we face and budget cuts, they have the same challenges we do. And if anything, that has driven us uh, together uh, ever closer. Um, so we do all kinds of sharing uh, with uh, particularly the Five Eyes. We have many other bilateral relationships, not in the Five Eyes Club, if you will, but which are Five Eyes-like. And we have a lot of great partners that we do things with uh, bilaterally. Um, in many cases, they just assume we didn't talk about it, so, so we don't. Um, but it's it is uh, it is richer uh, than than uh, in my memory in the fifty years I've been in intelligence. Here on the second row. Thank you, General Capos. Thank you for your service, and Mark Bingham, former Air Force Intel analyst, and uh, really appreciate everything you've done for our country. Um, I think back to when I was an analyst and life was really simple, back when we just had to worry about when I was stationed in Berlin and we had to worry yeah. about the Russians, right? <laughs> but it was a wonderful career. Um, you're sitting in a university with a lot of young students that are trying to think about what are they going to do in their career. And I worry about how we recruit into this community right. because it's a wonderful career path, it's a wonderful job, and there's so many facets of it. I would love to hear your thoughts on what you would say to the students here about here's what we're looking for and here's the, good, the really good and exciting and fun parts right. of being in our community. Thank you very much. for Thanks for the questions we'd like to say on the Hill. Uh, I do. I do want to acknowledge uh, the Marine up there because uh, I actually wasn't. Gina didn't mention it, but I actually started the Marine Corps, enlisted uh, 1961, and uh, very proud of that. Even though I did 32 years in the Air Force, and you're right. I often long for the halcyon days of the Cold War. You know, <laughs> the Soviet Union, the enemy we grew to know and love and lost. You know. Uh, what I say to people, by the way, the reason I'm glad you asked the question is uh, with all the technology, all the widgets and all this sort of thing, which is great, the most important resource in, in the intelligence community is our people. And I've done all I can and I'll keep doing it as long as I'm uh, in this job to protect our people. Um, what I, I think... Uh, and I'm kind of biased because that's all I've done all my life, is uh, it's hard for me to imagine a profession that is more challenging, 
more variegated in terms of what happens today. Every time I, every, when I come to work every day, I read through all the intel, what's going on in the world? And it's, it's always something different. And I think that and the prospect of serving in an enterprise that's larger than yourself, that is dedicated to the safety and security of, of, of our nation, which is beset with a lot of challenges and crises around the world, uh, is, is the basis for a, a, a tremendously satisfying career. And even with all the vagaries of uh, sequestration and whimsical shutdowns of the government and pay freezes, we are still recruiting, still bringing in thousands of resumes every year. NCTC had a job fair about six months ago. We, were gonna, we opened up to hire 31 more people, and we got 6,000 applications. And so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of interest, and, and, uh, which is very heartwarming to me. And what is really satisfying is to get out of the beltway, the unreality of the beltway, and go overseas, travel around to embassies, and see what our great young people are doing. And I say young people because, as I mentioned in my remarks, 60 or 65 percent of the intelligence community today has been hired since 9-11. So we've got a whole new generation of people that experienced 9-11 and wanted to do something for their country because of it. For one more, uh, straight up the middle in the back in that, in that hardest spot for you to get to. <laughs> I'm uh, James Martin, second year graduate student in the history program. Um, I had a question about, uh, you brought up briefly about the cyber threat. Um, what should be the government's role in integrating with the private community and protecting the uh, networks or whatever you call cyber? That's a, an excellent question, um, and it, it speaks to the fact that the government cannot, cannot do it all and should not do it all. There has to be a partnership here between the government. We can, do, we can do a lot, we can do so much, but we can't do it all. And there has to be better mechanisms, and some of this will require legislation because this gets very... It gets very complicated with liability uh, challenges and that sort of thing. But there has to be a better way of uh, a two-way flow of information. In, in many instances, and that's experienced today, particularly with hackers and the criminal attacks on, say, the financial sector, is the companies under attack are, that's the first line, that's our due line, that's the first line of, of defense, first line of warning. That may not be visible to the government. So we, we have to have a better, a better mechanism, and that's going to require legislation, I think, uh, so that the private sector uh, has stipulated responsibilities, as we do, for sharing. And it, is, it needs to be a mutual two-way two -way street. That is a good note on which to end. We'll be resuming in this room with registration open at 8 o'clock tomorrow and Admiral Inman giving an opening address at 845 that you will not want to miss. Mr. Director, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thanks.